I have something that I feel like the Lord wants me to share with you this morning. I told him in my office it's a little bit different approach. I don't think it's as much of a preaching uh, there. I don't even know if it's as much of a teaching, has some teaching in it, but just kind of sharing the heart of the Father, sharing the heart of God. And, and I don't know if you've ever been missing something before and, and an unexpected person told you where it was or they helped you to get to it and you wonder how on earth did they know that? How on earth did they know that? Usually it's... Uh, probably because of some experience in their own life. Maybe they've been there before. Maybe they know what it was like to ask, where are my glasses? My dad used to walk around the house and he'd say, where are my glasses? Has anybody seen my glasses? And, and we're like, no, no, I haven't seen them lately. You know, we'll look around for you a little while. And then all of a sudden he'd realize he could do that. I can't do what he did. And he would, they would drop right down on his eyes here. Have you ever done that before? Had your keys or your phone in your hand and you're looking for it? Kind of deal. Some things, some things are so close to us that we don't realize uh, where they are and how easy they can be found. But I want to share a message this morning simply the missing element, the missing element, the missing element of personal revival or, or even a corporate revival. And to have a corporate revival, there has to be some individual, personal revival in somebody's life. I want to remind you that repentance, repentance, Jesus taught repentance. Repentance is man returning back to God, and revival is simply God returning back to man. And we want God, we want the church to be filled with the breath of God, with the power of God, with the grace of God, with the love of God, with the goodness of God, with the anointing of God. We want the church to be, to be his again, to be uh, what he intended for it to be. I want to remind you, God is not as interested as getting sin out of you. God is not going to be impressed with you if you come and throw some sin on the altar this morning. Uh, God is more interested in getting you out of the sin. God wants you more than he wants your sin. That is what God is interested in. You are the apple of his eye. You're his creation in his own image. It is his blood that was shed for you, for the remission of your sins, for the redemption of your life. All of your debts have been paid. All of your debts have been paid. Uh, therefore, it's settled God values you. God values you. Now, you may say, I'm not worthy. Well, that's not true. Worth is a, is a dimension of, it's, a, it's a, a design of value. You are very valuable to God, very valuable to him. Uh, you are more so valuable than you realize. There's a lot of God that has not been revealed or seen simply due and because of abortion or suicide or uh, uh, un, un, a reckless uh, murder that people have killed people and, and taken things out. The enemy came to kill, steal, and destroy. And you and I are the living image of God. We're the vessels, we're the carriers, we're the Levites, if you would, the carriers of the Ark of the Covenant of God. You're special. You're, you're, his, you're his holy temple. You know, I've seen in this region many people lose their houses, lose their vehicles, lose their sheds, lose different habitation places or, or storage places, and it, and it affects them. Some might lose more than others. Some might lose seemingly less, but nevertheless, they valued it. Why? They paid for it. They invested into it. I want you to know that God paid for you. God invested into you. God, God sent his son, the blood that we just partook of, the bread that we just shared. Uh, he, was the, he was the temple in his time. He was the temple of God, Jesus was. But now it's you and I. And some of us may not even be any more bigger than a, than a tool shed. 
Some of us may not be anywhere comparative to a mansion. doesn't matter in his eyes. You're valued by God. You are precious in his sight. Each morning at our home that I'm able to be there, once the children have awakened and have started to file in and come out into the living room, they congregate in Gretchen's little corner. I call it Gretchen's corner. Gretchen has five corners in her house, and every one of those corners is a chair. She loves corner chairs in our house, and, and, and she will find herself regularly at one more times than others, but she'll find little corners that she sits in. And wherever that corner may be at that time, the children will approach Gretchen. They'll draw near to her, reminded there's only five still at the house right now. But the first one will find the armchair. The next one will sit on the ottoman, and maybe the next one, if there's enough room, will join at the ottoman. One might kneel or sit on the floor. If there's not any room left in the corner over there, one will get in the sofa that is nearest to the corner chair and will somehow curl up, cuddle up, or lay up in that area. They all want to get close to Gretchen. They want to get really near to her. They like to get in her space, which is interesting. Maybe you know this. Maybe you don't know this about Gretchen. Don't get in her face. She, she doesn't like you in here. She doesn't like it. There's fine, but don't get here, okay? But it seems like she enjoys that morning time when they get crowded around her and they get near to her. They all want to know the same thing when they get there. What are we doing today? That's exactly what they say. What are we doing today? Mom, what are we going to be doing today? Which ironically is the last thing they asked her the night before they went to sleep. Matter of fact, they will once again gather around that chair if she's seated there, or they will sneak into the bedroom before the light has gone out and get at the side of the bed or up on the bed. Sometimes I have to move pillows and people to get in bed. And they ask her the same question. What are we doing tomorrow? Mom, what are we doing tomorrow? So they line up and hopefully wanting to be the first one to ask her what they're doing so they can somewhat influence her into what they would like to do. You see, simply they love her, they need her, they trust her, they confide in her. She is where they feel safe, they feel informed, and they have the greatest sense of possibility to get to do what they would like to do that day. So what's my point? It draws a stark comparison with our relationship to God. I've been watching this for years and praying about and thinking about it and experiencing some feelings, some emotions, some thoughts over it, coming to some quick judgments or long-lasting considerations. The stark comparison, we tend to want to be close to him in the morning when we rise and then return to being close to him in the evening when we close our day. Perhaps most of you have a morning time with God. Perhaps many of you have been taught, been raised, or have drawn the conclusion yourself that while you're lying on your bed, you'll say your nighttime prayers, or you teach your children to kneel next to their bed and to pray. We have a tendency to start off that place and to end our day like that, and then again, try to start the next one. Yet during the busyness of our day, we're prone to drift. As the old hymn says, we're prone to wander, and we're apt to become careless and neglect, if you're a child, what our parents say, or perhaps if you're a child of God, of what our God says. We have a tendency to get out there and get on our own and 
whether God said that morning, this is what we're going to do, we still have a tendency to do what we want to do. We still have a tendency to find that path of what we want to do with our life and how we want to do it. As children, we can love the ones who love us and still hurt them as we drift. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Gretchen's children, my children, our children love her. They love me. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we love God. We wouldn't be here this morning if we didn't have some sense of love or respect for God. But we have a tendency to still hurt them as we drift from the desires and intent of their love for us, of their concern for us. Simple example, children can gather around Gretchen and she's their everything. She's their want and desire. Yet somewhere through the day, they argue. They might lie. They might cheat on something. They might just willfully disobedient or turn from counsel and neglect the care of a parent. I know it's real. I've seen it. I know it's not just real in this generation. I know it was real in my generation when I was a child. I've had time to be with my precious mom and my dad, and I know that they had the same issues in their life. It's called a sin nature. It's called the flesh. It's called humanity. I want to share a few scriptures with you this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I think there's something about us needing, some are even at the place of desiring to be near. Let us draw near. I like the concept of the word near. If you take the N off of it, you have an ear. I think one reason we want to get near is, is one that we can be heard, and two, that we can hear. I think we ought to make it with the priority and desire that we get close so we can hear more than we get close so we can be heard. I truly believe that everyone needs a place that they can hear the word of God, and you're in a place like that this morning. But I believe that everybody needs a place where they can be heard as well. I hope that you're building fellowship and relationship with others to where you have a place that you can hear or even make a place for other people to hear your heart and you to hear their heart. But the reality is, first things first, the Lord enlightened me not long ago that when we have a desire to be heard more than we have a desire to hear, it's the early stages of indication of the spirit of Antichrist. Now, many of you seated in here this morning may think Antichrist is just going to be some, some political figure somewhere, sometime, at some stage. The reality is the Bible says the spirit of Antichrist is already amongst us. That's what it says in 1 John. And it's a whole book about love. So a book about being loved and how do we love God and how does God love us. We need to be responsible and be sure with, with, an, with an assurance and with a sincerity of a heart with God. Do I come to prayer because I want to be heard or do I come to prayer wanting to hear? I'm sure that if we would take the approach and if we had a healthy aspect of the approach of coming to God to hear God, more than coming to God to be heard by God, just getting in his corner for that little bit of time so he can hear my requests and hear my anxiousness and hear my, my desires and my, 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 my. If we would come to hear God, life would be a lot more constructed, a lot more uh, uh, rewarding, a lot more fulfilling. I truly believe that. 
Our spirit is our responsibility. We need to discipline ourselves to approach God correctly. He said, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure heart. And that's not telling us what to get when we get there. That's how we ought to be when we get there. I would highly encourage you to do as much cleansing as you can do before you get to where only he can do the rest of what needs to be done. Therefore, if you have these promises, and as a church and as believers in this era, I see that we have a tendency to have promises but very little presence. We want to be able to come into the presence of God correctly. You may be in a worship service like you are here this morning and thinking, how did that person sense the presence of God? And I didn't feel anything. That person probably prepared themselves. Prepared themselves to worship God. Not just got into worship and asked worship to prepare them. We have a tendency to approach ill-prepared, unprepared, ill-equipped, not equipped. Amen? So he says, draw near. He said, make sure you come with a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience cleared and your bodies washed with pure water. Jeremiah 23, 3. It says, am I a God near at hand? Says the Lord, and not a God far off. And God is simply saying to you, the heart of God is saying, I'm really not far away. I'm not the distant one. Reminds me of the old country boy that grew up outside Wooville. That's down near Woodville, if you look at the signs on the road down there. And he had the old bench seat on the pickup truck. His name was Bobby. Her name was Bobby Sue. And whenever Bobby Sue would get in the truck with him, she'd slide right over and hip to hip with him and sit right next to him. And they'd drive through town. They'd go out in the old country roads. As the years went by, Bobby would get in the truck, and Bobby Sue would get in, and she wouldn't slide as much. And they were driving down the road, and she was on her side of the truck, and he was on her, his side of the truck. And she said, Bobby, he said, what is it, Bobby Sue? She said, why is it we don't sit right next to each other anymore? He said, I haven't moved. I want to mind you, God has not moved. God has not distanced himself from us. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And yet even in the midst of our faithlessness, as hard as you may be on yourself, as far as you think God wants to be away from you, he remains faithful. He remains faithful. James, in the New Testament, under this new covenant, James kind of exhorted exhorted us just like maybe Pastor Whalen was exhorting us or the worship team was exhorting us. Come on, let's get near to God. Uh, don't just take this without knowledge. Have understanding. Get close to it. Grasp it. Understand why you're taking that unleavened bread, why you're taking that juice. Understand what's taking place. He said, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So not only is God saying, I am near, God is saying, I'll get near if you do. The reality is, if I were to approach Gretchen or Cody on the front line row here, I am getting nearer to them, and the reality is they're getting nearer to me. Now, they may not get up and run, but something may start to beat in their heart, thinking, is he coming to me? 
She going to shake hands? Is she going to hug me? Is she going to kiss me on the necks or on the lip? I'll let you choose which one I would do that to. <laughs> but something inside of them is wanting to get closer to me. I couldn't have a greater desire as a pastor, as a shepherd, that something would compel you, stir you, quicken something in you to want to get closer to God. I don't think I could share a pure message from the word of God, but that God wants you nearer to him. God wants you aware that he wants you nearer to him, and he's willing to come nearer to you. Could you imagine for a moment being the heartthrob, although maybe in junior high or high school or, or, or college you had not yet blossomed, you had not yet built yourself out, and you didn't throb anybody's heart. But to know that God, to him, you're his heartthrob. To him, you're the desire of his heart. He said, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. He didn't say, get over here and I'll wash you. He didn't say, get over here and let me get that smudge off of you. I'm giving you some insight. He said, cleanse your hands. He said, if you have these promises, promises cleanse yourself. From the filthiness of spirit and flesh. It's Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. We have, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 7. We have some responsibility to cleanse ourselves, to prepare ourselves. Simply from these verses, we can conclude that God wants to be near to us and he wants us to be near to him. What does the word near mean? It means to be close or intimate in manner. Closer, intimate, at, within, or to a short distance or time. Jesus and the two disciples that John the Baptist led to Jesus in John chapter 1, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, that's where most of the church stops. That's where most of the Western Hemisphere Christianity comes to a screeching halt. I've been forgiven of my sins, and I get to go to heaven. I've met people that have never been further than 50 miles from where they lived their whole life. They would have no clue, no idea how to go beyond that barrier. They wouldn't know how to cross the Mississippi River. They wouldn't know what to do if they ended up in Colorado or Colorado, whichever way you say it. They wouldn't know what to do. Illinois or Illinois, they would not know. But you can usually tell when somebody gets there and they ain't got no clue where they are or who they're talking to or the culture they're in. It's very obvious. Heaven's a faraway place. But we should be close to it in time. We should be getting so near to him that it feels like heaven is... One step away or one dream away, Pastor DJ, as you shared this morning. Jesus said to them on the second day, John the Baptist simply said, behold the Lamb of God. Sin issues taken care of, now behold him. You see, our relationship with Jesus is not merely to be forgiven of our sins, but to experience the Emmanuel, God with us, an intimate personal relationship with God. That second day, they, they left John, and they started following Jesus, and Jesus could sense the nearity, the proximity of closeness. 
He could sense the desire, the interest, and he turned around. Could you imagine being able to turn the interest of Jesus as they were getting nearer and nearer to him? And he said, what is it you're looking for? What is it you desire? And they said, oh, we want to know where you dwell. You see, to be near is one thing, but the nearness is to get to the intimacy of being inside of. Matter of fact, the best passage scripture I could think of for intimacy and nearness to Christ would be John 15. I'll leave that for your home study. I'll leave that for your personal journey, but he wants you to abide with him. He wants you, listen to me, he wants you to dwell with him, not just go to dwell with him. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And in that day you will say, this is Isaiah speaking on behalf of God. He's, he's communicating the heart of God of what the people of God are going to say. God already knows what you're going to say. You, you don't have to really uh, prep yourself and, and prepare yourself of what you're going to say. It's really not as much about what you're going to say. He already knows what you have needed before you even ask. What's really important is what he's going to say, and sometimes he'll already tell you what you're going to say. Some of my best prayer times have been when I prayed something that the Holy Spirit gave me to pray because I was in a very intimate situation, and I finally prayed something that really made some sense. But he knew what I was going to say before I said it. And it's so fun to walk away and go, I can't take the credit for that. But it's because of the nearness that I was experiencing with him. He said, in that day you will say, the Lord is telling the people what they're going to be saying to the Lord. I think he knows a thing or two. I think he has some great understanding and knowledge. As a matter of fact, I think he knows what you and I need tomorrow and even on that day, whenever and whatever that day is. He said, this is what you'll say. He said, oh Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He has also become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. After being saved from the hand of their enemies... And from the wrath of their God, the children of Israel will once again praise the Lord. Not as much as for who he is, but accompanied by what he'll do. This is one of the reasons that they would recycle back into, like we recycle back into being forgiven over and over again for the same thing. Why would we return why would we return to our sin like a dog would return, as the scripture says, to his vomit? Why is that? Have you ever wanted to find a way to break that cycle? Find a way to come out of that if you find yourself 20 years into this, 40 years into this, 10 days into this, whatever it may be, continually recycling yourself back into the same ruckus, the same rubbish, the same trouble that you're in before, going back and having to ask him to forgive you over and over and over again. Have you ever found yourself there? That's where the children of Israel were. 
They would get close to God. They would praise him, hallelujah him. They would fight for him. And then all of a sudden they would drift away and think that they could still do it in their own strength and in their own power and that they didn't need God. Psalm chapter 6, verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. As we sat in our family devotions last night, I let Harvest read a passage of Scripture and let Levi read a passage of Scripture. And, and in that passage of Scripture, I said, I said, do you see any comparison? Are there any uh, reflection to one another in these two verses from two totally different books? From Isaiah the prophet and David the, the king and the prophet. I mean, I mean, yeah, David's all this stuff, the lover of God. I mean, do you see anything in comparison? And they said, yeah, it's said about God's anger. We don't talk much about God's anger. I don't know that we comprehend or understand God's anger, and the, the less we talk about it, the less we'll understand it and comprehend it. It's really not a bad thing. It's really a good thing. And when we tend to think about anger and the word anger in our English language, there's a tendency, the sense that it would mean that there should be some invoking or provoking or there should be some response with harm, harm that we would want to harm somebody. That we'd want somebody, we'd want to, we're refraining it, but nevertheless, we really want to punch you, or we really want to spit on you, or we really want to damage something, we really want to curse you with some selective words that aren't clean. We have that tendency to think that harm is, is or anger is the, the controlled substance of not letting out what you really want to do to somebody. Oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, and deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For there is death, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? In other words, I don't want to die this way. I want to die until I've expressed my love for you and my need for you and acknowledge that I have caused you to be angry. I've stirred a hot displeasure in you. I am weary with my groanings. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because of all of my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. David is expressing his own heart to God. We know David, according to Scripture, is a man after God's own heart. So as he was approaching God and, and his heart was approaching the heart of God, we can, we can deduct from that that God doesn't want to punish you. God doesn't want to be angry at you. God doesn't want to harm you. God doesn't want you to pay for it. As I told you earlier, it's paid for. No, no, you need to hear me. It is paid for, all taken care of. Even before you did it, it was paid for. Here is a question I have to raise. Is it possible to make God angry at us? 
both David and Isaiah make the statement of God being angry. Pretty evident that God is angry. One's speaking on the behalf of God. One's after the heart of God. One's been around this circle a couple times. The other have been around it for generations, coming back again and again. So let's look at the word angry. I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew. Anef. Not enough. Anef. A-N-E-P-H. Now you know Hebrew. But there's a meaning behind this. There's an understanding behind this. There's a concept behind this word instead of just the English word angry. Let me ask a question. Has anybody ever had somebody angry at them? And you felt like they wanted to harm you? They wanted to threaten you? Come on. Did you get the sense that they were not pleased with you during that time? Let me flip the coin. Has anybody ever been angry before? And there was something in... Ring their nose. You know, you did this with the child, but you're like, I really want your nose in here. <laughs> First Kings chapter 11, verse 9. And the Lord was angry, angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. Now, let's look at this. Let's get a little understanding here. If you know anything about Solomon... He's of the lineage of David. Uh, He's been blessed greatly by God. Matter of fact, just a few things. You really can't blame the Lord in your mindset for being angry with Solomon. God appeared to him twice. He gave him vast wisdom, wealth, and power. And all he asked in return is did he keep a couple of commandments? That's all he asked. Can can I just just, uh, uh, abbreviate a little bit here? All Jesus and God have asked of us is to keep two commandments. Matter of fact, he knew we'd be through ADHDDHQ and LB and all. He knew we'd be all that stuff. He he knew we'd be all of it. We're all 26 stacked up somewhere. Letters in the alphabet. He knew. He said, I know what I need to do. They're going to have a very short attention span. Very short. So I'm going to take the Ten Commandments. I'm going to turn them into two. Because if you study the Ten Commandments, it's really the nature of God. It's just who he is. How he would and how he wouldn't. What you should and what you shouldn't. That's bottom line what it is. It's just nature. Nature of God. So Jesus comes along. God on earth. And he says, here you go. Here's the two commandments. Not that they're not all still intact. Not that they're all not still right and true. He said, but here's how you can remember them. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbors, love yourself. This is how you should treat God, and this is how you should treat others. And I don't know about you, but I still struggle with two. I do. I still struggle with two. Matter of fact, the reality is I struggle with one. I don't struggle with loving you because if I'm not loving you or them or whoever, simply because I'm not loving him. So really the two, because the second is like the first, he said, even for you that were born in the new covenant, I'll just make it one. If you love God, you will love others. Amen. 
You say, well, that's not possible. Well, the scripture says all things are possible through Christ who strengthens you. And if you and I do life through Jesus, we'll be doing life right. Amen? Amen. So the key is don't let anything get between you and Jesus. Don't let anything get in between you and God. Amen? But what did Solomon do? Here's a guy, vast wealth, vast wisdom. I mean, he's got authority. I mean, he's got, he's got a lot going for him. Everything's happening. What did he do? He went out and married foreign women who persuaded him, persuaded him to build shrines at Mount Olivet, to build a shrine for their gods, Milcom and Shemo. Now, if you break down Milcom, you'll find Molech. And if you have Molech, you have, you have the demand of the false god Molech, of human sacrifice. Did God have any right to be angry with Solomon? I think we would call come an agreement and go, yeah, so we've established. I mean, I've seen books written, God's not mad at you. I, I, I get the concept when you read back behind it, but don't put something out front to build a picture that can bring some confusion. And don't take away a part of God that God is. God is wrath and God is love. God is heaven. God is hell. It's the wrath of God. It's the decision of God. And he's done everything and provided everything to keep us out of hell. To keep us out of hell. You can't really blame God for being angry. If you were God or even mom, would you be angry? Remember the corner? Children, they come and they gather and they come and they gather and then they wander and then they go. It's kind of our human nature. Anger or neph, this word can range from frustration to actual hate. We do know that God hates sin. Amen? He hates wickedness. Does he hate sinners? No. Could he be frustrated with them? Yes. The best original translation of looking at this, gaining regard of God's anger to those he loves. You see, this is an anger that is expressed to those that he loves. And then you stop and realize, who does he love? He loves the whole world. So this is common. This, this, is, this is who God is. He does not change. He doesn't love one person more than the other, but one person may love him more than the other. And that's where they see the blessings. It's how you come to God. It's how you present yourself to God or how you don't. It is that he's displeased, that his heart is broken. His heart is broken and closely related with the anger himself, but yet, or listen, this word almost tends to make you think that God is angry with himself. Angry with himself. But remember, he told us to love your neighbor as you love yourself. God loves himself. God's self is committed to his self. God is God. Cannot change and cannot lie. So in essence, he's not angry at himself. It's what you tend to believe. He's not angry that he created man. There's a greater sense even beyond this of what his anger really means. 
The best origin translation is that of a snorting camel. Yeah, the Bedouins over there, the farmers and the sheep herders over there, the, uh, they have camels. They travel on camels, and I've seen a camel snort before. <laughs> we took a team to Israel. So many people wanted to ride the camel that they had the little camel riding area over there. I didn't get to ride a camel. I've been there twice. I didn't get to ride a camel. I'm going back to ride a camel one day. But I saw a camel snort one time on somebody who couldn't keep their balance. It's like... <clears throat> Not another one of these Americans trying to ride a camel. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I won't even go into the rest of the descriptive of it. A camel will snort when it is frustrated or angry. When the Bedouin's camels start to snort, he does not, the Bedouin doesn't translate that as if the camel is mad at him that he wants to hurt him. Is that he's frustrated, he's done everything he can possibly do, but the human wants it to do something else that it can't. God still wants to bless you, but he can't bless you in your disobedience. God still wants to be near to you and to hear you and you to hear him, but he can't when you're living in disobedience, in reckless abandonment, and you're living orphaning yourself from God. He cannot express the Abba Father heart to you if you're going away from him and not getting near to him. And therefore, he snorts. I wish I could snort. I'd be afraid of what might come out. So simply, there's a, there's a frustration. doesn't want to cause him harm, but he's frustrated. Years ago, the Lord, through someone who discipled me, shared a definition that has somewhat shaped my life, and now I see why and how it did without me even knowing. All frustration comes from unfulfilled expectations. The book of Hebrews, the author there said, we're we're persuaded better things of you. You should not neglect so great of a salvation. You shouldn't let yourself drift away. You should draw near to God with clean hands and a pure heart. We shouldn't just keep coming to God as, as, as paupers and as beggars and, and filthy and wretched and, and just saying, fix me and give me new garments again. And then we throw them down and we go waste those. Right. It's this ongoing perpetual prodigalism. We have been praying in this house for, for years now for prodigals to come home. And our mindset is that of the one who's not here yet. And we're missing the opportunity and the reality that maybe they're here, but we think that they're close to God because they're in church. I think there's prodigals or prodigality in the house. That we keep coming and changing our garments and returning to the pig pens. Oh, it might be a different address. It might be a different activity. It might be a different time of the week, but nevertheless, our garments are stained. And we have this sense come to us, I'm not doing too good. I'm not right. I need to go and ask the Father to forgive me. 
and even to tell him I'm not worthy of it. But he's already told you, you are. So what's the cause of frustration? Why would the camel snort? Why would God be angry? Cause of frustration is a feeling of helplessness. Not, not that you can't help me, but I can't help you. I have people sit in my office over 34 years. And they come to want me to hear what they're going through and wanting to hear what they want to hear. Now, I'm on a minuscule comparative to him. Minuscule. We all have a tendency to find somebody who agrees with us about something which turns into everything. And there's this sense of frustration. I know as a parent, I know as a friend, I know as a pastor, there's a sense of frustration that I can relate to and understand by just a little bit what God must really feel like and how much snorting there might be, not snoring, snorting there might be going on in heaven. But God, God feels helplessness. He feels, I can't help you. You don't want the Holy Spirit. You don't want to worship in the Spirit. You don't want to pray in the Spirit. You don't want to be baptized in the Spirit. You don't want to be obedient to the Spirit. You don't want my help. But you're saying, help. But you don't want it. I wish somebody here could snort. The camel feels pushed to do something. It has already done the best it could do. And we come to God and we push him. And we push him. We're like, well, maybe if I get baptized again. Maybe if I do this or that or whatever again. And God's saying, I already did the cross. You're looking for a camel to carry you somewhere when the cross has already carried it for you. He said, you're, you're pushing me away. Because you want me to do it a different way for you. You want the pastor to shake your hand. The little things that, that get us annoyed. That makes us get offended. You want the worship to be shorter. You want the message to be longer and shorter. But even the word frustration falls short of explaining God's sense of anger. I mean, that, that's just a, a good start of an understanding. I'm going to give you something so descriptive it might be painful. As I said, our English word anger seems to carry the sense of wanting to cause harm. It is never God's intent to harm you. It is his frustration that we continue to place ourselves, causing ourselves to be in harm's way. God does not want to harm you, but he wants to keep you from harm. But yet when we keep doing things, it's kind of like the Apostle Paul. The very first thing Jesus said to him, he said, literally said, he said, who are you, Lord? He's like, that's enough right there. But you can start a church in America with that revelation, Paul. Yeah, but I don't know you. That's fine. You can start a church because I'm Lord. Because you confessed me as Lord. So you can build a whole theology and a whole denominationalism off of that because you know that I'm Lord. Yeah, but I don't know you. 
He said, well, let me tell you something, son. He's got him laid out on the ground. He's in the power presence of God. He said, why do you kick against the goads, the proddings, the convictions I've put on you? You are making life more difficult for yourself. That's what he said to him. He said, you're making life more difficult. If you would respond to my convictions, if you respond to those nudgings, if you'd respond to my leading, he said, you would not be in the guilt and the shame that you're in. It won't take you 14 years on the backside of the desert to get this stuff out of you, but you've kicked against it. You've resisted it, and you kept trying to do it by educating yourself to another religious level, by putting yourself in another position that man could praise you and honor you. You kept building yourself up, and I had to knock you down. You don't understand. Paul, you're making life more difficult on yourself. Could that possibly be the situation with us? Think of it this way. This frustration, this anger, this enough. The anger of God. As a wife who has done everything she could to show her husband how much she loves him. Only to see him walk out of the house to seek the comfort of another woman. What that wife feels is enough. She doesn't feel enough. She feels enough. Yes, she feels anger. But she also feels hurt, heartbreak, frustration, sadness, grief, rejection, and even fear. I would never do this. But I promise you, there are women sitting in this sanctuary that goes, that was it. It's still it. Still messes with my life every day. That's what she felt. So what's your point, Pastor? That's how he feels. When we go out to find comfort in something other than his Holy Spirit. Something other than his presence. Even to have our pity show or to have our, our pride parade or whatever it may be. We try to find acceptance and, and approval, and, and we try to accept this, this sense of adoration that we're special in someone or something other than him. That's what he feels. Oh, you see, this is the missing element, godly sorrow. It's the missing element in the church at large, the church at small, that we don't understand what our sin what our disobedience, what our pride, whatever it may be, you could make the list as long as you want. We don't understand how it makes him feel. And that helplessness. I've done everything I can do. I can't do anything else. It's been done. Yes, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I expect better things out of you. It hurts. I'm heartbroken. I created you in my image. I've got such great plans for you. I want to spend eternity together. I don't want a divorce. And then you're going to say it's me that is distant from you. You're going to blame it on me. You're going to make it look like there's something wrong with me. Then you're going to run some, find some other wind of doctrine and some other way of trying to find a way to me and build your own Tower of Babel. I can't, it, it won't work. My love is the expression, my anger is the expression of my love, how vast it is for you. If she truly loves her husband, 
She wishes him no harm. Now, that may hit another level of somebody. I understand that there's people inside, and I'm using a a real-life situation, but the reality is the Word of God is still the Word of God, and the principle of husband and wife is in the nature of God himself, and we are to be the bride of Christ. It's nothing we should should tuck under the rug and push to the side. It's reality. And then to find... That today you say, well, it did hurt. I was frustrated. I was angry. But I did wish him harm or her. There's nothing wrong with that. Not if you're able to acknowledge it. And to go, oh. Oh, I kept feeling I was supposed to pray for them and for their salvation and for their healing and, and not talk about them and not tear them down. Oh, oh. Today you can love more like God. It's a beautiful thing. But she fears, if she truly loves her husband, she wishes him no harm, but she fears what his infidelity will do to him and their children. It's an interesting comparison that is drawn here. And I gathered this from uh, Haim. Haim. He's a Jewish, or he's a Jewish guy that studies the Hebrew, and I pulled some of this out. But it's interesting that the, the, the comparison would be that God would say, I'm the wife, and you're the husband. You see, this is what he did. Jesus became a man. So he could experience what you and I are experiencing, and he could conquer and achieve and accomplish and fulfill and prove to us that with me, you can do this. With me, this can be done. I know what you're feeling. I've I've felt every infirmity, every pain, every ounce of whatever you've gone through. I have that feeling. I know what that's like. But God is literally saying to you and I, I don't want you to be harmed. I don't want you to be hurt. I don't want you to be disappointed. I don't want you. I don't want something to happen to you. Now watch this. Or even our children. I have sat with husbands and wives that have wept in my office. Wept. Wept. Not over the divorce as much as over the children. What's going to happen to them? How's this going to fail? Now you look at the church. Now you look at all this segregation in the church. We have so many gospels and so many doctrines and so many theologies and so many that we can't even see eye to eye with one another. And we're supposed to be brothers and sisters. You see, because there's been many men and women, preachers and prophets and prophets and evangelists, or possibly even church members and Bible study leaders and mentors and disciples and teachers and all that stuff that didn't know and understand the love of God. Because we get angry at people, we go start in a church somewhere. Because we get angry at this, we, we, we go and do it a different way. When it anger is just a sense of frustration of how do we get this ironed out? We go to the cross. But we put God in the picture, not just as an answer, but we put God in the picture. How does this make you feel when I'm gossiping about somebody to somebody about somebody that was about something? You see, we need to have the sorrow of God. In our lives. How does it affect me? Not as much as how does it affect him. 
Bottom line, our displeasure to the Lord breaks his heart. What do you mean by displeasure? Discomfort or unhappiness. Did you realize that you can make God uncomfortable? You could disrupt his happiness? I think about God quite often. I'm like, what kind of days he have? And I ought to praise him all day long because I'm sure there's a lot of people that aren't. Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Pastor Joel, you can join me. Thou art worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honor and power. This is in the King James. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Did you hear that? All things, meaning all things, 6,000 years worth of creation, everything created by God was created for his pleasure. I want you to realize something. All things includes all people. We're created for his pleasure, not for his displeasure. God didn't say, you know what, I want to create something that's going to hurt me. Something that's just going to agitate me and irritate me. But day after day, we invent or create atmospheres that agitate and hurt us. We listen to things that, that irk us and we disagree with and we get angry at. And we... God didn't create things but for his pleasure. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Gives you a little insight in there. Are you seeking God diligently? Or as soon as a frustration, a disappointment, a disagreement comes in your life, that you go to something else, you go somewhere else, that breaks the heart of God. When you go to the bottle, you go to the drug, you go to the phone friend or whatever it is, that breaks the heart of God saying, you, you don't, you're, you're, you're not confiding in me. You're not relating to me. It stirs it. It causes God to snort. Displeasure. David called it hot displeasure. But without faith, it's impossible. So it's telling us that it is possible and impossible to please God. But the reality is, it's impossible to not please him because you have the possibility because he gave you faith. Well, that sounds like a rhyme or a riddle. It's really not hard. Everyone has been given the measure of faith. So everyone has the possibility. It's impossible to not, not please God. So when we do it, it's a willful decision. Or it's mere ignorance. Or it's lack of being faithful. He has given us what it takes to please him. That's faith. Put your trust, put your hope in God. That's what faith is. Is that all it takes to stay near to God? Just by remaining pleasing to him? So then why do we continually find ourselves in the dilemma that we find ourselves what are we missing to stay near to God? What's the missing element? How can we keep ourselves from returning to the place that offends him, that irritates him, the place of needing uh, to repent for our behavior? As you stand to your feet, I'm going to share with you one last time the missing element. All I can do is inform you. I can't come do it for you. I can't stir an environment for you. I can't mix some blend of 
potions or portions of something make this happen. But it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for godly sorrow, for godly sorrow, highlight it, underline it, put, do something to it, circle it. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. So is there the possibility, God help us, is there the possibility that if you have not had godly sorrow, that you're not safe? It says godly sorrow. The word of God, you can argue with it all you want. All you want. But that's putting your knowledge above the knowledge of God. That's putting your, 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 your theologian study higher than the knowledge of God itself. It says godly sorrow. I've hurt you. I've offended you. I've frustrated you. I've disappointed you. What I did affects you. Not, oh, I'm so tired of being a drunk. I'm so tired of being a liar. I'm so tired of cheating. I just don't want to be this person anymore. I've seen that a thousand times. And then they become somebody else. Or they go right back to what they're doing. I'm sorry, I see it all the time. Until you realize there's a real relationship here between you and God and the one who dwells inside of you. I've offended you. I've grossed you out. I've disappointed you. I have broken your heart. I've wounded you. I've hurt you. I put you on the cross again. You see, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Listen, not to be regret, regretted, but a sorrow of the world produces death. That not to be regretted, godly sorrow leads a man to repentance unto salvation that would not be repented of. Now, you need to hear this. Your sin over here is dabbling in this. You come back to Jesus. He washes your feet. He washes your hands. He cleanses you. You go back to this right over here. That wasn't godly sorrow. No, you, you, you know that God doesn't like that, so you stay away from that from now on. And you might stumble into this. You might get into that. But the more you get it, you realize, man, this is my area right here. I'm in my zone right now. I'm walking in the spirit. I'm living in the kingdom. This is, this is the life. This is the, it's the abundant life. I'm not just going to heaven. Heaven's here right now. This is good. I love you. I don't just like you. I don't just want you. I don't even lust you. I, just, I love you. Something starts to change. The glorification of transformation. You start to become more like Christ. He said, you won't regret it. I could not tell you how many people I've met that regret turning their life over to God. I mean, literally are bummed out at the two years that they lost of being a party animal. No. It wasn't godly sorrow. There's worldly sorrow. You know why those people got saved? And the salvation they did? They got caught. They got caught. Uh, you've been gambling, and you, you've been doing this, and you've been doing that, and they compromise his That's worldly sorrow. It's kind of like the rich young ruler. He had worldly sorrow. Jesus goes, sell everything, man. Give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. You got to get rid of that stuff that you accumulated in the world. You got to lay it aside. And, and the guy said, ah, I got way too much to get rid of. His worldly sorrow caused him to walk away from Jesus. His godly sorrow would have let him throw everything to the side and sell out for Jesus. 
Oh, what Pastor DJ said, today's a new day. Once you come up here thinking you've got to go through five years to get out of what you've been in, you can come to Jesus in a moment there, in a moment's time. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, new creature, old things pass away. He doesn't remember it, throws it as far as the east is from the west into the sea of forgetfulness. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Uh, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence did it produce in you? What clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. He said, if you really repent, you'll be on fire for Jesus. If you really turn to God and you get the heart of God, he will set you ablaze. He will awaken you. He will revive you. He will restore you. He'll replenish you. It will be a night and day difference when you turn to God with godly sorrow so I asked this question this morning that's a lot to comprehend in one moment but perhaps is there a need of godly sorrow in your life I can't say the altar is going to fix it but I believe the altar can give you an alternative route of where you have been going and to get on the path where he is is there a need of godly sorrow in your life Is there a need for your heart to be broken before God for anything or everything? If that is it, come to the altar. Let me pray with you. Come in agreement, an activation, uh, just to ignite something in our lives that you desire to live. Listen to me. Let me ask the second stage of this. Do you believe that it's the missing element of revival and that we as a church need to be praying for godly sorrow not just for church sorrow and world sorrow, but you would join with me to be praying for the missing element. Have you, do you remember that stove you used to have and the element burned out? How I many y'all remember that? You know, before the glass tops or the porcelain tops, it had that little element on the top up there and the element went out and, and the burner didn't work. Do you have any burners that aren't working? There's a missing element. Oh, that we could understand the heart of God. Oh, that we can understand the heart of God. So I'm asking anybody else in the second level, if you'd say, yeah, I'll join you in the altar this morning, and I'll start crying out with you for godly sorrow, for people to, to, to realize it's their relationship with God that is most important. It's how they feel that God feels, how they know what God feels. I'm going to ask you to join me in the altar. And I'm going to let every one of you know in just a moment, in all due respect, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for your household to be visited with godly sorrow. I'm going to pray for that to become a reality in your life. We'd have a better comprehension and understanding of God. You see, the next time God's angry at you, it's because he loves you. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's that he's more persuaded that you can be better and do better. So, Father, we come to you this morning with humble hearts, willful souls. Lord, a mind being renewed to literally say, Lord, I am sorry for how I've offended you, how I've hurt you, how I've frustrated you. Lord, thank you for speaking to us this morning. 
Thank you for drawing our hearts to where you are and to who you are. I pray for the snort of heaven to be revealed in the hearts of earth. I ask, Lord God, that we would get a good understanding of your love and of your concern for us. And Lord, that we would realize how we have affected you and how we have caused you pain and suffering. So simply, Lord, we come this morning and say, forgive me. And Lord, I pray over all of us as a church, as a people, believers and followers, that we'd have a greater sorrow when it comes to you. Lord, we'd have a greater understanding when it comes to you. And I'm asking you today for your help. And Lord, one last thing I ask is that we would remember how to approach you, to hear you, not just be heard by you. That we would desire the heart and the mind of God. Forgive us where we've hurt you. Help us, help us to love like you, to be like you, and to live like you. I ask this in Jesus' name.